BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, we rewind to 1961. I'm James Day, general manager of KQED in San Francisco. The program you're about to see <clears throat> deals with a subject which is controversial, delicate, and to some downright unpleasant. This is a film broadcast back then called The Rejected. We unearthed it here at KQED where we produced The California Report. It was one of the earliest television documentaries about being gay in America. And it quoted Stanley Mosk, who was then the Attorney General of California. With all the revulsion that some people feel toward homosexuality, it cannot be dismissed by simply ignoring its presence. It is a subject that deserves discussion. There is so much amazing history in these archives that chronicles the discrimination and violence the LGBTQ community has faced over the decades. Gay people are simply afraid to walk the streets at night. Beatings are an everyday occurrence. Getting they didn't want money. All they wanted to do was beat me up because I was gay. Lesbian mother lives constantly in fear that she's going to lose her children. Because too long, gay people have been the prey. And the beginnings of the pride movement. On the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, we look back at the early days of California's queer rights movement and explore the impact of that activism on young people today. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. I'm looking at my own shadow on a screen that's changing colors, and I'm hearing words like, I see you, I care for you, I love you. It's an installation called Universal Exchange. Californians sharing words of comfort, words where we acknowledge each other, words where we can hear each other with radical empathy. Is there something for me? This installation is at the entrance to an exhibit at the Oakland Museum of California called Queer California Untold Stories. So I'm looking at this reproduction of a 200-year-old logbook that shows how Spanish priests reclassified California native people who today we might consider transgender or non-binary. The priests baptized them with Christian names and, in many cases, forcibly regendered them. This logbook is from 1769, but this exhibit also includes the voices of native LGBTQ people today here in California with a video. The subject of two-spirit doesn't come up in 
you know, passing down from, oh, my grandmother told me the story about the time she slept with Susan, you know, those sorts of stories don't ever seem to get passed down or asked by anthropologists. And one of the things I notice about this exhibit is that it doesn't just include the stories of the big cities, San Francisco and Los Angeles, but it also includes the voices of rural Californians. That brings us to our first story on our show today, which is about the town of Jackson in Amador County and about how one family is challenging this historically conservative community when it comes to LGBTQ rights. Jackson is a quiet gold rush era town with quaint brick buildings on its main street. Except when you walk into Rosebud's Cafe. This is a place that shouts its values from its bright green walls. It's got these huge family portraits, tons of posters and flyers announcing programs for the arts, supporting local homeless initiatives, and advocating for LGBTQ rights. At least half the customers here are from far out of town. We're from Stockton. Manteca. Monterey. Owner Mary Pulsecamp says that's important because Rosebuds doesn't always feel the love from all of their neighbors. We're very grateful for city people coming out here. <laughs> that's it. The big ranchers and the old families probably have blackballed us in some ways. We're outspoken liberals in this cafe, and the community that we live in has not been so so forward in those ideas. For the series California Foodways, Lisa Morehouse tells us this place has become a refuge for people who don't always feel accepted, including Mary's own family. Rosebuds is like a beam of light. Mary's son Ty works the front of the house like he's done for nearly 30 years. I started on the cash register when I was six years old. It's like my sibling, Rosebuds. It's like the fourth child. <laughs> Mary says the family really started supporting LGBTQ issues when her daughter Megan came out as a lesbian in high school. In this community, it was really scary. She worried her daughter would be bullied. But that was just the beginning. Because Ty stood out even more. There was the controversial neon pink baseball cap, the short hair dyed purple that provoked a teacher. She pulled me aside on the way out to P.E. one day and told me that I was ruining my life. I knew, I knew then that she was wrong. But what I didn't know was how those, her saying that would still be a part of my consciousness 30 years later. And that's obscene. I mean, I was just a fat little girl. I was just trying to be okay. Because he didn't know it then, but Ty is a trans man. Playing with his look, he learned about himself. There was a mohawk, clothes cut up and pieced back together, decorated with safety pins. For me, my parents giving us the room to express ourselves through our physical aesthetic was a, was a matter of my survival. What else would I have done? If I couldn't cut my hair, I maybe would have been cutting myself. I have Ashley for four. But since he was a kid, Ty has moved through the restaurant with ease and authority. Today, he's wearing a kilt, his full red beard braided. Were you up for Daffodil Hill this weekend? Yeah. Awesome. Did you go already? One of the neat things about having grown up in a restaurant is that I was able to feel powerful. School never felt, felt safe, and that's not healthy for our brains. As high school began, Ty knew he was attracted to women. Ty started the Gay Straight Alliance at Amateur High School, 
and it caused uh, just an uproar in the community. It was just like, I did not go to Glee, okay? <laughs> that was not my life. Uh, school was rough. Yeah, his tires were slashed on campus. I mean, I have been followed home. I have been run off the highway. I had dog smeared in the front seat of my car parked in front of my childhood home. It was, it was difficult times. Oh, I mean, I had friends whose parents grounded them from me. So it didn't seem unusual that there were people that weren't interested in dining with us. In a school of only 800 students, Ty says he collected over 100 signatures in support of starting the club. As high school wound down, Ty still didn't know the word transgender, but he did something really dramatic for a new teenage driver. I just couldn't stop myself. I cut my driver's license in half right over the gender marker. Soon after going off to college, Ty sat his parents down and said, If it's all right, you know, I think I'd like to be your son now. After college in Santa Cruz and a few years in Sacramento, Ty returned to Jackson. He loves the country and the rolling hills of Amador County and wanted to be part of his family's farm-to-fork efforts at Rosebud's. And coming home meant returning to the sanctuary of the restaurant. I have experienced a great deal of trauma at points in my life where my brain was still developing. He says he deals with PTSD and agoraphobia and went through periods when he couldn't work. One night after closing, Rosebuds hosts a potluck for the Tri-County LGBT Alliance, which puts on a pride parade in nearby Murphy's. Ty's mom, Mary, welcomes the guests. It's people like you that have made the world safer for my baby. And so I appreciate you. If you're ever scared or worried, just know that there's someone out there in the world who appreciates and from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for being an ally or for being out and welcome. 16-year-old Miles goes to the youth group Ty started in the region, but is attending the potluck for the first time. I'm basically here because, like, I think meeting a lot of people who are going through the same thing helps, like, you know, develop, like, who I'm going to be when I grow up. Miles's mom is here in support, but struggling with pronouns. I love her to death, so... So whatever Miles decides to be, that's its choice. Her, his. I still have to get used to this. No worry, we'll get through. With help from gatherings like this one at Rosebuds, Ty says that's what this space is all about. We try to use the bounty that comes through the cafe and reinfuse it right back into Jackson. You know, the saying, we are the salt of the earth, I never understood what that meant. But uh, it was explained to me to be that we have to flavor this space. Ty says no one should hold back their flavor. For The California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Jackson. The kind of discrimination Ty felt as a trans person goes back deep in California history, and you can see that here at the Queer California exhibit at the Oakland Museum of California. So there's a lot in this exhibit that's really painful about queer and trans history, but there's also a lot of joy. So much cool stuff here. High heels from a famous trans woman named Miss Major. There are pictures of early drag groups. And there's this sparkly jacket that belonged to Sylvester. 
So what we're hearing right now is You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, which was a 1978 hit by Sylvester, who later became known as the Queen of Disco. And he was born in Watson, Los Angeles. He grew up in the Pentecostal church, which is where he learned to sing. And then he later came to the Bay Area. And I'm here with curator Christina Linden. Hi, Christina. Hi, thanks so much for joining us here. These are anthems that do make people feel excited and proud to be exactly who they are. Somebody feeling mighty real, you know, and that's something that I think uh, trans people today can relate to and uh, identify a kind of lineage back into the past, even if it's in relation to somebody who might not have used the word trans themselves. Sylvester became an emblem of gay pride for people in California and around the country as were his backup singers, the Weather Girls. They found their own fame with their 1982 number one hit, It's Raining Men. That was the song of the day, I tell you. It was almost like a theme song, an anthem. People just went berserk. <laughs> That's Guy Clark, who's been selling flowers on the same corner in San Francisco's Castro District since these disco beats set the soundtrack for local queer empowerment. Hi, Guy. Hi. It's so nice to meet, to meet you. Surrounded you by peonies and sunflowers, reporter Asala Sanapur joins Guy on a sunny San Francisco morning. He's dressed in head-to-toe neon and a colorful baseball cap patterned with, what else, flowers. These are called daylilies. The color is so vibrant. You know, I love these pink ones. And I think I got them because of Pride Week. <laughs> Just in time for Pride. Yeah. Every day when I wake up, I'm so excited to get out here and just tantalize the community with these beauties. <laughs> Guy's got the best flowers. You gotta come to him. How you doing? <laughs> yeah. Do you see that little guy right there? I remember his father when he was a little kid, and they used to come down the street, and I would teach him his colors. This is the second generation. When I first came to San Francisco, it was the time of the hippies. Free love all over the place, unbelievable. We used to call it Mecca. If you really wanted to live your life fully, you'd come to Mecca. You could be yourself here. You can't be yourself everywhere. It was like a home. AIDS was just starting to multiply. We had a paper here called the bar paper every week people would look in it for the obituaries and the obituaries went from like one inch to the whole page they would come and they would say guy my lover's gone can you put together some flowers for the funeral and I don't have a lot of money but I really want it to be beautiful, and I told them, we'll pull out all the stops. We'll make sure your lover gets to the other side in dignity and beauty. 
I just started doing one funeral after the next, after the next, after the next. And uh, when the obituaries went back down, it was a sigh of relief. We could finally uh, oh, see through the clouds of AIDS. We finally could see the sun shining. I, at that time, lived only four doors from where I sold flowers. Best commute in the world. After 28 years, I got a note underneath my door and it says, we're gonna evict everyone in this building, but after we've renovated, you can be the first to come back. Well, I just didn't have a million dollars to buy that condo. For a while, I was homeless. It wasn't that I didn't have money, but I couldn't find an affordable place to live anymore in San Francisco. When I was evicted out of there, I was so bitter. I was so angry. But now, it made me stronger. It made me more resilient. I can still sell flowers. I still got my permit. And it did get better. I don't have as many flowers, but I've got more customers. Oh my God, that's good. That's, that's amazing. That's so wonderful. That's incredible. I bought a ukulele and I have a guitar and I thought that it might be fun bringing my ukulele out here on the corner and singing a couple little songs. <laughs> and it's really funny, even though I'm, I feel like 103, I still have that dream. You know, if I die out here selling flowers, what a way to go, huh? <laughs> right to heaven from the flower stand. <laughs> All right, I'll see you tomorrow then when I walk by. Okay, Phoebe. Bye-bye. <laughs> You're listening to the California Report magazine, a special show on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots and the LGBTQ pride movement. California was a site of resistance to police crackdowns on the LGBTQ community. Even three years before Stonewall, in 1966, there was a historic riot at a restaurant in San Francisco's Tenderloin called Compton's Cafeteria, when mostly trans women and drag queens stood up to police. It was one of the first LGBTQ riots in U.S. history, and many people say it marked the beginning of transgender activism. One of the trans women who was there, Felicia Elizondo, she's also known as Felicia Flames, wrote a letter to the LGBTQ community about her history as part of a series here on the California Report magazine we're calling Letter to My California Dreamer. Dear LGBT community of the world, my California dream came true when I found out that I wasn't the only queer in the world. When I was in high school, around 62, 63, I came to the Tenderloin in San Francisco. I found a world that I never knew existed growing up in San Angelo, Texas. The Tenderloin was the gay mecca in the 1960s. People came here to start a new life, a new identity. We were 
Jotos, sissies, queens, queers, lesbians, male hustlers, female impersonators, intersex. We were lost souls trying to understand what future was in store for us. We were out when queer was against the law. To survive, we had to turn to prostitution, sell drugs, clip tricks, robbing them when we were desperate to buy food and pay rent. If we didn't have money, then we were on the streets. Compton's cafeteria was the center of the universe for us. It was a place to unite with each other, to make sure some of us had made it through the night. What changed my life was when I went to see the Christine Jorgensen story. She had been in the Army and had the first sex change in 1951. I finally realized this is who I am. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but where there is a will, there is a way. I went from a little boy to transforming myself to the woman that I am today. I am now one of the organizers of a group of community members that started to make sure that our gay history would never be forgotten. We got a plaque put on Taylor Street to commemorate the Compton's Cafeteria riot, which happened three years before Stonewall. This plaque commemorates the 1966 Jane Compton's Cafeteria riot, where transgender women and gay men fought against police brutality. Please don't forget all who came before you. You have to know where you have been to know where you are going. Sincerely, Felicia A. Elizondo, Felicia Flames. I am a trailblazer, an activist, a historian, a tenderloin queen, a pioneer, a legend, an icon, a diva, a 31-year survivor of AIDS, and a Vietnam War veteran. Felicia Flames' Letter to the LGBTQ Community, part of our series, Letter to My California Dreamer. We're back at the Oakland Museum of California, where so many of these little-known stories of LGBTQ history in California are on display. People were driven by a vision, not just to be accepted as lesbian and gay. That's photographer and lesbian activist Len Keller. She's got several beautiful photos here in this exhibit documenting black lesbian activism in the Bay Area in the 1970s and 80s. Lesbians were fighting for women's rights. Most of us had come from different other kinds of movements, different kinds of progressive movements. We were trying literally to change the world. Len Keller's photographs really represent a women's culture, a lesbian culture in the Bay Area at a time when women's space really existed in a way that's different from what we experience today. Most lesbian bars are gone, but I also feel with an exhibition like this, there's an opportunity for a younger generation to learn about a more diverse set of stories. I mean, I think even stories that have been immortalized in Hollywood about gay pioneers, maybe more mainstream narratives, are still maybe not being remembered by a younger generation of LGBTQ folks. Brothers and sisters, you must come out! Come out to your parents! Come out to your friends if indeed they are your friends! Come out to your neighbors!
That's actor Sean Penn in the 2008 Oscar-winning film Milk. It's about Harvey Milk, who became the state's first openly gay elected official when he won a seat on San Francisco's Board of Supervisors in 1977. But his time in office was cut short when he was gunned down in City Hall a year later by one of his colleagues on the Board of Supervisors. We wanted to know whether Harvey Milk's story resonates with young people today, so we sent reporter Ryan Levy to City College of San Francisco to find out. All right, everyone! Brianna Bahar Hansen welcomes their students to Introduction to LGBT Studies and introduces them to today's topic. Harvey Milk, the life and journey of one of the greatest visionaries in the LGBTQ community. And they're surprised when they find out that some in the class, like second-year student Matthew Foley, know nothing about the gay San Francisco icon. I haven't even heard of him before today, which I feel kind of bad about. And most of the students who have heard of him have just seen the Sean Penn movie and really don't know much else. At least one student, third-year Miranda LeBounty, is a little more familiar with Milk's legacy. I grew up kind of with Harvey Milk mentioned in the same sentence as Martin Luther King. But even she's pretty hazy on the specifics. And the fact it was so recent, I always assumed Milk was like 50, 60 years ago, and that it was only 40 years ago he was assassinated. Jesus. Like, our parents, our parents were alive and walking around during that time. Hearing the details of Milk and Moscone's assassinations for the first time, the students are especially disturbed by the fact that former San Francisco supervisor Dan White only served five years in prison for the killings. If Harvey Milk somehow killed Dan White in Moscone, he would be life in prison. But because it was a white cis straight man doing it, if it were a black guy or a trans or trans person or, or even just a woman, yeah, like that person would be institutionalized or still in jail to this day. That last voice belongs to Michaela Kendrick, and she's touching on something that a lot of students brought up during the discussion: race and gender identity privilege. Not just for Dan White, but for Harvey Milk too. This idea of intersectionality, the way that a person's sexuality combines with their race and gender and socioeconomic status and other identities, is something that young queer people talk about a lot, and it impacts how they view someone like Milk. I do connect with him in some sense because he is a hero, and I will never sit there and say that he's not a hero because he literally died for us. But at the same time, he comes from a different background, and I don't think he like encapsulated everybody. LaShawn Purcell says he can connect with Milk because both of them are cisgender males. But for Purcell, who's black, that's where the similarities end. You know what I mean? There's a lot of other trans women of color that couldn't necessarily do what Harvey Milk did because of who he is. But even while they look critically at how Milk's privileges allowed him to do what he did, students like Michael Thomas still recognize the kind of impact Milk had. If it wasn't for him, this class wouldn't have been able to even be in college. That's a fact. And Milk also opened the door to a generation of LGBT elected officials in San Francisco who felt like they could be political players without hiding who they were. Student Miranda LeBounty notes that voters almost elected San Francisco's first openly gay mayor last year, former supervisor and state senator Mark Leno. Leno ended up coming in second, ahead of Korean-American Jane Kim, and behind London Breed, the city's first African-American female mayor. The fact that our election was between two women of color and a gay man, I don't know, that made me kind of happy. After class, I asked Professor Brianna Bahar Hansen why they thought the students, some of whom had never heard of Milk before, still seemed to feel a connection with him. Many people are living that experience where they're marginalized, they're vulnerable, they're they're not welcome within their spaces. Even here in San Francisco, there's been just some very heart-wrenching stories of not being accepted by families. And really, the issues that Harvey Milk 
talking about in the 70s still so apply to their lives today. And because those issues of oppression are still present for these young people, Harvey Milk and his legacy still matter to them, even if they only just learned about him. For The California Report, I'm Ryan Levy. That's the California Report magazine, your weekend storytelling show from the California Report. Special thanks this week to Lindsay Wright and Claire Cornell at the Oakland Museum of California. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Peter Arcuni is our director this week. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. And our team also includes Asala Sanapur, Susie Racho, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation, more graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.